You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Hi, everybody. Liam here. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know how much I love Oakland. (laughs) But sometimes living here can be frustrating, to put it mildly. Just look around. Massive inequality, dangerous streets, pollution, corrupt cops. You get it. It didn't have to be like this. These problems at the institutional level You can trace them back to bad decisions that were made by people who lived here before us. Throughout the 20th century, the vision of Oakland that most politicians and business leaders embraced, it was a vision driven by greed and racism. The fact that when highways were being built, they plowed through black and brown neighborhoods, that was no accident. The same city leaders who made decisions like that, they didn't want affordable housing for quote-unquote minorities or even poor whites. That's why they blocked proposals that would have built it. They didn't want commercial development that would serve working-class people. Instead, they wanted to build fancy new malls downtown to attract big-money shoppers from the suburbs. So for decades, that's what they focused on, this elitist and unrealistic vision was what they were trying to create and to make downtown more attractive for upscale developers. The city leaders, they condemned and evicted nearly all the SROs downtown, those residential hotels where poor people lived. And even after those SROs were nearly all gone by the late 1960s, the major retailers that they were trying to attract shocker, they were still happier in San Francisco or Walnut Creek. All the energy and money and time that could have gone into improving Oakland for the people who actually lived here was squandered, leaving empty lots and vacant buildings that lingered for years. One more example, and this was something that was actually proposed and could have happened. Instead of building greenway parks along the thriving creeks that wound their way down through the hills, they buried those creeks in concrete tunnels. In old photos and paintings, you can see these creeks and they looked magnificent, like something you'd see in the Sierra, but now they're hidden underground. And, okay, stay with me here, because I know this intro is depressing, and I promise you the rest of the episode isn't all this much of a Debbie Downer, but what I'm getting at is... Even though I love Oakland, it could look a lot different now. More equitable, more affordable housing, better public transportation, less violent, greener, if the people in power had made different decisions. And I think it's important to understand how and why those decisions were made. Because looking back, you notice a lot of the same mistakes being made over and over again. When you take a step back and notice these cycles, these patterns, you realize that these bad decisions, these failures are bigger, much bigger than the individual politicians and business leaders who made them. Not to let those guys off the hook, but they were 
for the most part, playing their role in a deeply flawed system that rewards greed and rewards racism, even when the outcomes benefit only a few while harming the vast majority. Okay, that might not be a newsflash to most people, but it's important to zoom out sometimes and look at these issues from this systemic level because behind every pothole, every eviction, every parking space, every police scandal, every needle at the bottom of Lake Merritt, there's a web of policy decisions going back decades. And that web connects all of us. And we're also trapped in it. So, yeah. My guest today is Mitchell Schwarzer, a professor of architectural and urban history at the California College of the Arts. He's also the author of a brand new book called Hellatown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption. And this book, Hellatown, it breaks down these patterns. Mitchell Schwarzer explains the history and the system, and some of the details that he dug up are astonishing. Like this one. In 1999, then-Mayor Jerry Brown said, quote, I already have affordable housing in Oakland. I want unaffordable housing. I'm just going to repeat that one more time. I already have affordable housing in Oakland. I want unaffordable housing. I think you all know what happened next. Like I was saying earlier, the problems that we're living with today... They didn't happen by accident. Okay, enough intro. Let's get to the interview. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned. I'm here on East Bay Yesterday today with Mitchell Schwarzer, the author of Hellatown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption. And this book takes a real bird's eye view of the last century or so, a little bit longer really, uh, of Oakland. And as opposed to focusing mostly on the, the politicians or the activists that have been a part of this community for all those years, this book really is more about patterns and trends in urban development and and policies and architecture commerce it's really a a high level look at why oakland looks the way that it does now and so this is a two-part question i guess why did you write this book it's so specific it's so focused on oakland and obviously i love that but it's a very niche look at a city and then why did you take that approach of looking at the kind of overall development patterns as opposed to you know the history of mayors or something like that so maybe to answer the second part first um it it all relates to my background and my interests so i uh, have a degree in city planning and i uh, worked for the san francisco department of city planning in the early 1980s for, for several years and then i went back and got a doctorate at mit in history of architecture and urbanism. But then I moved back here in uh, the late 1995 to take a job at California College of the Arts. And ever since I've been back here, so I've been back here now 26 years, 
I've been, you know, getting involved much more in, in the place I live, you know, writing about California architecture and California urbanism, cities and buildings, because that's my, I've been interested in that since I was a kid. And so by natural extension, I started being much more interested in the place I am. And then, then alongside that, I started to notice that there isn't a lot written about Oakland. That one, you know, because I'm familiar with a lot of the literature on urban history, urban geography, and Oakland doesn't get mentioned a lot. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. It's a very interesting city, a unique city. And so I was like, hmm, there needs to be more attention to Oakland. So I started with a couple of articles I wrote about downtown in the, you know, the city center plan in the 1960s and 70s. I wrote about the evolution of Jack London Square. And then I wrote another piece about what's going on now with the kind of, you know, high-rise residential development and the homelessness and housing problems. And you asked about why I focus more on urban built environment than on politics. Well, that's my area. So while politics is a part of the, a big part of the book and social relations are a big part, the focus is really on how did the physical environment come about? How did Oakland, the way we live it, the way we see it, the way we function in it, the way we relate to it. How did it all come about? What are the things that happened and what are the things that didn't happen? Because right. uh, that's also a big part of the book. Uh, and it, it extends across the range of, of areas from you know the transportation infrastructure to housing, to workplaces, to civic buildings, to parks, to shopping. Absolutely. Well, you already anticipated my next question, which is from your perspective, having dug into the history so deeply and so thoroughly. I mean, this book is a very comprehensive look at everything from transportation networks to the history of shopping malls and grocery stores in Oakland. I mean, you really look at the development from a lot of uh, major angles. What is it that makes Oakland unique? Well, I guess maybe the first thing would be that um, it's probably, other than St. Paul, Minnesota, the most prominent second city in the United States. Okay, so we have to talk about what is a second city. You know, cities develop in irregular and complex ways, and usually in the early history of a city, uh, there are many centers that are competing to be the city, right? And that happens across the country. And in the Bay Area, that was certainly the case as well. San Francisco got an early lead because of the gold rush and because of San Francisco's location for uh, oceanic travel. And Oakland really is not a gold rush city. In fact, in 1860, Oakland had a population of less than 2,000 people, while San Francisco was over 100,000. You know, right. the gap was huge in 1860. And I think a big portion of those people were actually living up in the hills, uh, logging the old growth redwoods out of existence. Definitely, they were, they were, it was basically agriculture, logging, resource extraction, right? And it wasn't, it wasn't a big, it was a small port, a very small port. And uh, it really got its start with the Transcontinental Railway and the development of, of West Oakland and Oakland Point as a transshipment center, right? From continental travel by land, by rail, to you know, sea travel. And Oakland was the kind of point of convergence of those two. And it becomes a second city. It, it, it grows dramatically from you know, the 1870s onward. I think it's the second largest California city by 1880, and it remains that until the very beginning of the 20, 20th century when Los Angeles overtakes it. And then all through the 20th century, you know, up to the 1970s or maybe even longer, 
Oakland still is doing well for much of the 20th century. It's still growing a lot. It is increasing population. Oakland has an attitude, and by Oakland I mean the, the kind of movers and shakers of Oakland, the business leaders, the political leaders, the ones who are making things happen in terms of development. They have this feeling that Oakland should be the largest city in California. And it's abetted by certain events like the 1906 earthquake when a lot of San Franciscans relocate here. Absolutely. I was going to just jump in real quick to mention, I remember reading a newspaper opinion column right around that time, I think it was about 1910, when the Oakland boosters were trying to really convince business to move from San Francisco to Oakland instead of rebuilding in the city. And one of these columns predicted that Oakland would become the Manhattan to San Francisco's Brooklyn. Oh, totally. I mean, they, there's this, you can read it in many, especially if you read Chamber of Commerce, their annual reports and publications. There's this feeling that, okay, Oakland is on the continental side of the bay. It has great rail links. It has good road links to the rest of the country. San Francisco is isolated on its peninsula. Oakland has more flat land than San Francisco. Oakland has a better climate than San Francisco. So for, for a variety of reasons, there's this feeling Oakland should be the, the dominant metropolis. And so because of the railroad in the, in the 19th century and then the earthquake in the early 20th century, and then the growth of Oakland through industry, the First World War really jumpstarts Oakland industry. Oakland becomes the industrial center of the Bay Area. Well, there's a feeling, well, given all these factors, we're growing, we've got all this new industry, a lot of San Franciscans have moved here, the future is ours. The population of Oakland was doubling almost every decade or two from essentially the time Oakland was founded up until about, what, the 1930s or so, early 1940s maybe? Oakland grows until 1950. Yeah. You know, the 40s were another big growth period because of the war industries, right? But then we've kind of been stuck at like 400,000, 500,000 in that range ever since then. Yeah, we went, I think the, the, the population crested a little over 400,000 by 1950, and then it kind of hovered. And it went a little, it went up and down. It didn't grow much. It didn't lose much. Which is kind of an anomaly because at the same time, California as a state is just booming. I mean, the population of California doubled or maybe even tripled during the following half century while Oakland's population remained relatively stagnant. It remained stagnant, relatively stagnant. But if you look at the last census, which is fascinating, Oakland grew by 50,000 people between 2010 and 2020. We now have 441,000 people, roughly. And we were at 391 in the last census. So there was a big population. This is the biggest increase since the 40s mm. in the 2010s. So there is this interesting uh, shift uh, when we can talk about where, that, where they live and what happened. But um, there was this competition all along and this feeling we, we have to outdo San Francisco, which was good and bad because it led to a lot of striving and a lot of plans and a lot of ambition. You know, you see it, for instance, in the sports teams. Right? In the 1960s, Oakland miraculously, for a city of roughly 400,000 people, you know, we gained four major league teams. It started with the um, Raiders, followed by the Oakland Athletics. They relocated from Kansas City to Oakland, followed by the Warriors, the Golden State Warriors, that came to Oakland eventually by the late 60s. Uh, and they, there was even an NHL team for The a while. Seals. The Seals. <laughs> so, I mean, you cannot come up with another mid-sized American city that had four major, you know, all four major league sports teams. San Francisco never did. 
mm. had uh, four at the same time, you know, I, and they were proud of that. Like we have bested San Francisco. Right. And at the same time, we also, uh, Oakland became the, the main port. Yeah. You know, up until the 1960s, the early 60s, San Francisco was really the, the primary port of the Bay Area. And with containerization, which Oakland jumped on, and was an innovator in, and probably one of, that's one of the great stories of Oakland, is the development of the container port during the 1960s. When Oakland became briefly, by the late 60s, the second largest container port in the world, you know, which is extraordinary. And ever since then has been a major container port. Yeah. And San Francisco, because of its site, right, it didn't, have the, it didn't landfill the way Oakland did into the bay. You know, and it didn't have the highway links and the rail links. And you need all that for containerization. You need large areas to store the containers. And you need trucking access for the trucks to come in. And it, it was disadvantageous for San Francisco. Right. Oakland grabbed onto it and became this major container board. So I think the sports teams and the containerization in the 60s, Oakland was like, whoa, we are really moving forward. And yet at this exact same moment, Oakland is falling apart in a lot of ways. All right, now the sirens have passed, so let's get back to it. You're describing this buildup, all this uh, excitement, this energy, the rise of industry, the sports teams, high hopes for Oakland. What happened? Why didn't these predictions of Oakland becoming the next major metropolis of the West Coast necessarily come true? And that's a big part, big story within the book and, and something we really, Oakland has really had a hard time grappling with. Um, a lot of things happened. One is that I, I like to call the 60s and 70s the period when Oakland is kind of a Rust Belt city in the Sun Belt. In other words, it starts to bifurcate and Oakland starts to become a very divided city. And to talk about that, you have to start talking about demographics. Up until 1940, thereabouts, Oakland was largely white. Uh, we're talking from the late 19th century up until the 1940s. It's largely a, a city composed of white people. At some point, like over, well, over 90%. You know, the black population in 1940 is under 3%. And the Asian and Latino populations are similarly small. It always had different populations, but they were never that large, right? The black population after 1940 grows exponentially. It grows from, in 1940 from under 3% to 1980, 40 years later, it's approaching 50%. And it's the largest single group. They're the plurality in Oakland. There's this enormous migration of blacks from the western part of the American South, from Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, to California, and mainly to Oakland, Los Angeles, Richmond, San Francisco. The places in California where there's a lot of industrial development related to the Second World War. The jobs. The jobs. There are a lot of jobs in Oakland. Shipyards, factories, and naturally people start coming for those jobs. So Oakland's demographics changed dramatically starting in the 40s. The jobs don't last. And this is one of the, you know, the, the industrial boom of Oakland, which really, I would say, it really takes off in the teens during the First World War, and it starts to collapse in the 1960s. So you have about a 50-year period where Oakland is this industrial giant you know, of the Pacific, second only to Los Angeles. Right, and we're talking auto manufacturers, shipyards, uh, electronics plants, canning. 
you you go through it all in the book. It's an amazing overview exactly. of how many industries Everything located to Oakland. Made in Oakland almost. Yeah. Oakland was this, you know, and this is the case, you know, this is, it's kind of mirrors a lot of Midwestern cities and Eastern cities, Philadelphia, Detroit, St. Louis. They're all having, these are all industrial powerhouses during that same period. America, this is America, right? Pre-globalization. This is pre-globalization. And pre-suburbanization, really, in, in a lot of parts, like Alameda County. Right, it, the, the industry is happening in Oakland, not in the suburbs of Oakland. So what starts to happen are a couple of things, and you just indicated one of them is suburbanization. It starts with, the first collapse in industry is the shipyards. The shipyards really function well on the West Coast during wartime and not during peacetime. So after the Second World War, the shipyards in Oakland and uh, Alameda start to downsize and eventually shut down. They're all gone pretty much by 1960. The second big, big casualty is auto assembly. We had several auto assembly plants in Oakland, two run by General Motors, one by uh, Fajil Motors, uh, and there were lo lots of smaller ones and lots of associated auto uh, production outlets. One of Oakland's many nicknames uh, back in the day was the Detroit, Detroit of the of West, the, right? Exactly, the Detroit of the West. Well, the, the Detroit of the West is gone by 1963. It's really remarkably rapid. From 1960 to 63, it all falls apart. What happens is the plants move and GM relocates down to where Tesla is now in Fremont. Why do they relocate there? They relocate there for the same reason that Ford left Richmond and went to Milpitas a little bit earlier. They want land. They want big areas of land. They want a new plant, horizontally uh, structured plant. So they go from a small plant, which is now Eastmont Center. That's where the, old, the main GM plant was. There was another one, another large one on um, International Boulevard at the San Leandro line. They close those plants because they're constricted. There isn't a lot of land. And they go out to Fremont where they have a lot of land because this is all based now on the you know, re reorganization of society due to the automobile and trucking. You, know? so you don't want st factories with multiple stories. It's hard to move up and down those with vehicles. So you want one level plants up to date with lots of land. And so there's a suburbanization of industry that really starts accelerating around that time in 1960. And from 1960 to the 1990s, all the industries you mentioned leave. The canneries all close. Why do the canneries close? Well, they close for different reasons. A lot of the orchards and uh, farms that supply the tomatoes and the apricots, they have to close because they're replaced by housing and, and shopping centers in places like Hayward and San Lorenzo and then other parts of Alameda County. So they're gone, they're in the Central Valley now. So it makes sense for the canneries to be located near where the produce is grown. So they relocate to the Central Valley. So the canneries close. The electronics plants close. They relocate because there's a centralization of electronics industry, both in the Midwest and then eventually overseas. So a whole set of globally determined developments alongside suburbanization lead to industrial collapse in Oakland. And so for the new migrants, the black migrants who've arrived in Oakland and starting in the 40s, it's disastrous. Right, because unlike the white workers who can move to Milpitas or Fremont to follow those jobs due to housing restrictions, housing discrimination, the black workers can't chase those factories south. They can't at all. They, they, want, they can't live in the suburbs. They're prohibited living from living in the suburbs by racially exclusionary ordinances. 
you know, I think San Leandro in, in the 50s and 60s is like 1% black or under. And the same goes for most of the suburbs nearby. So blacks are pretty much con constrained to Oakland itself. So they can, and then the highways, you know, to get down to those new jobs and the BART, which is built in, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s, really doesn't facilitate in going out to those jobs. It facilitates getting people from the suburbs in to San Francisco. And that's a whole nother story that we can talk about. So yeah, the, you have this bad situation for ha almost half of the Oakland population. And this applies as well to the smaller Asian and Latino populations in Oakland, where they really, the, the, the jobs that people depended on are vanishing, right, right? right? So during the early 40s, it's great for the new blacks who arrive because there's, it's called the Great Compression. You know, it's this period when there's so many jobs that people who are normally on the bottom of the employment ladder do well. But as soon as the war ends, that starts to change. Right, last hired, first fired, I believe is the, the concise phrase to sum that it's up. It's true, and there is a little recovery in the 50s, but with a real larger collapse from the 60s to the 90s, culminating in the military bases all closing, which right. had a lot of black employment. Right. Oakland had three major military bases, the Naval Hospital in the Hills, the Naval Supply Center, and Oakland Army Base by the in what is now the Oakland port. They all close in the, in the 90s. So the employment picture goes from being decent to being catastrophic for lower income people in Oakland. And this is completely tied to the rise of Oak crime in Oakland. From this, it starts, if you look at crime statistics in Oakland, they're not that alarming in 1960 and from 70 onward they're alarming mm -hmm. you know murder yeah. rates go way up and this is large you know this it, it cannot be separated from the lack of jobs and it's also the case that in oakland and elsewhere in the bay area blacks were prevented from kind of getting the jobs that other people could get they couldn't get jobs with bart it mm. took a long time. There were a lot of protests. They couldn't get jobs with the city of Oakland, with the police department, with restaurants, with major businesses. They were pretty much kept out of the good job market. Right, of course. And I mean, there's the famous uh, even protests at grocery stores, places yes. like Safeway, yes. where they were uh, civil rights uh, leaders were, were demonstrating against the fact that it wasn't only, you know, white collar jobs or government jobs that people of color were locked out of, but even entry level uh, service sector jobs. And it's beyond even jobs with Safeway. Safeway is a very, it's a sad story in a lot of ways. It was headquartered in Oakland. You know, it was one of the largest grocery chains in the United States and very innovative and based in Oakland from the 30s all the way to the 90s for 60 years. And yet Safeway, during the latter part of the 20th century, consolidated. They kept building bigger stores and had fewer stores. So they kept closing the smaller, older stores and building new, larger stores. And what happened is over time, they kept closing pretty much every store in the flatlands that served the minority communities. And if you look today, I think there are six Safeway stores left in Oakland. All of them are in the lower hills or the upper hills. None of them are in the flatlands. The, the um, flagship Safeway in Oakland was at, uh, on Broadway, by, it's where the grocery outlet is now. Shout out to Gross Out. It, that's where the, and, and that was a marina style Safeway, beautiful design, you know, and it closed by the late 90s. Yeah. So, Oakland, the, a company that was based in Oakland basically abandoned half the population. And so this all speaks to this bifurcation of the city that's going on in this period. You have basically 
half the city or more not being served by jobs, not being served by supermarkets. So there's the, the, the beginning of food deserts in Oakland where people don't have access to food nearby. They, you know, they have to go to the little corner groceries, which mainly sell liquor and high-priced food. So Oakland starts to be a city that isn't really benefiting half of its people. I know in the book, one theme that you keep coming back to again and again, and you trace a lot of these kind of social ills to, is the rise of the automobile. And before we get into some of the the trends that you analyze in the book regarding uh, the rise of car culture. I want to talk for a second about how you begin your chapter about cars because I love, you have an anecdote. Somehow you figured out who Oakland's very first car owner was and it was a doctor who had a steam powered car, which I didn't even really know that was a thing. But I love this quote that you have about how replacing tires was easier than shoeing a stallion. Uh, describing this transition from doctors who would ride you know, ponies and horses to their appointments, uh, you know, changing to the, the, the steam-powered cars, cutting-edge technology at the time. So um, I want to ask how you discovered who Oakland's first car owner was and uh, how bad do you think the potholes were back then before we get into sort of these bigger social issues of the impact that cars had on Oakland? Uh, I found it through... I think it was, you know, I went through the Oakland Tribune and the Oakland Post, you know, the newspapers extensively. For you really hours. found like patient zero though. Yeah, and I found him and I was like this, you know, this guy and, and doctors were wealthier and they needed, you know, they needed to get around town. So he was one of the, it's kind of like, you know, a, a new, when a new technology comes into being, it, it often manifests itself within a certain sector of society. Like televisions didn't first appear in people's homes. They first appeared in public places like bars where you, people would watch them in a communal place and eventually get them in the home. A lot of uh, technological improvements are like a lot of them come out of hotels, air mm. conditioning. Mm. You know, people at first experienced air conditioning in hotels and then, they, oh, we want it in our home. So and cars were kind of like that. They didn't first appear for the general market. They appeared for a certain segment of the market. And then people saw others riding around them like, oh, this is kind of great. And you know, the gasoline-powered car triumphed by the early 20th century. The second part of that question is just kind of a joke, but I'm just thinking, you know, looking at how bad Oakland's potholes are now, oh, I yeah. can only imagine. I feel like we probably still have some potholes from back then that haven't been repaired yet. Well, I mean, you have to remember, remember back then, most of the streets of Oakland were not macadamized. They weren't laid out in concrete or, gra or asphalt. Right. There were a lot of dirt streets in Oakland. So the potholes were even, you know, there was not just potholes, but mud. Yeah. Good luck getting refuse. around in the rainy season. Right. And horse manure and all sorts of, you know, garbage was it, the street environment is better today than it was 125 years ago. But the potholes have become kind of, even driving from my house in Grand Lake to your house here. I, I encountered many potholes. Yeah. If anyone in uh, City Hall has listened to this episode, 27th, please. We've got quite a few potholes on that one. It'd be great to uh, get those filled in. Um, you know, there's another great quote I love from the book where you mention the fact that, quote, land use and building patterns are a puzzle that can only be deciphered by going back in time. So let's talk about some of those puzzle pieces that you put together in this book here and the connection between those land use patterns and these different transportation networks. Because you really take it from the key system and streetcars up through 
AC Transit, BART, cars, etc. Talk a little bit about that. How do you see this relationship between the evolution of different transportation networks and how land is used in a place like Oakland? And I, I like to actually end with Zoom, because I think Zoom is part of that. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it's, I've only realized that during the pandemic, but I think I'll, I'll, I'll connect it to that. Before streetcars, right? And so streetcars are really invented in the late 1880s and really become widespread in the 1890s. You know, it wasn't that easy to get around. It took a long time. You know, you're basically traveling either by foot or by horse. And what streetcars do is increase the, the, the speed of travel by roughly threefold. So you can travel three times as fast as you did earlier. And what that means, and you can carry stuff right on them too. And so what streetcars do is they extend the city horizontally. They allow people to commute from longer distances to, to other parts of the metropolis. So the streetcar city, which emerges in the 1890s and continues all, it's operative until almost the, you know, roughly the Second World War era. The streetcar city extends the city horizontally across all the way, you know, you could also go up into the hills because before streetcars, horse-drawn vehicles have a very hard time going up and down hills, you can imagine, where streetcars are, very, are much better at that. And since Oakland is comprised of three zones, right, the flatlands, the lower hills, and then the very steep upper hills, the lower hills start getting developed with streetcars, and that's the early 20th century. And even the slightly steeper neighborhoods, the streetcars couldn't get to the developers who were working hand-in-hand -hand with the streetcar lines, they uh, built the quote-unquote secret stairways, as they're known now, but basically staircases to serve these residential neighborhoods that are still wonderful walking paths. Yeah, they built this, the, the, uh, the stairwalks because people didn't want to walk too far to the streetcar. And if they didn't want to walk far, that means the land wasn't as valuable. So how do you increase the value of land closer to a streetcar line if, it's, if, if there's a big hill in between? Well, if you create a walkway, then you, you allow people to walk more easily to the streetcar. The land is more valuable. They can sell it for more money. And that's the name of the game. I didn't even really, I wasn't aware of this until I read your book, but you talk about how the key system this electric streetcar system wasn't even really designed to be profitable. It was more about making the land that the streetcars serve profitable because the same people who owned the streetcar were speculating on this real estate. Totally. The streetcars were laid out to facilitate land development and land sales. Mm -hmm. They were not laid out at kind of in a kind of thoughtful manner. Well, this area should have transportation, this area should. In fact, there were lots of duplicate lines at first. So it was a kind of, it was a private sector affair. It was a money-making thing, but it's actually what led to the development of much of Oakland, the streetcar era. And automobiles were the same thing afterwards, right? The, the colonization and development of the upper hills, which really occurs more after the Second World War, is by automobile. And it's the same thing. You know, lay out roads, widen roads, develop new freeways and access points, and you can get to places quicker, right? So there's this history of, from streetcars and then to automobiles and freeways, of expanding the metropolis, right? Basically creating new land for development, for profit. So that's a big part of it. What's also attendant to that, though, is I think, and this is contrary to what we, t I think, what, especially in the Bay Area, which is so technophilic, we, you know, we think every new technology is going to just be fantastic and it's going to result in new ways of living and new apps and, and the like. 
Well, what often happens with the new technologies is that it actually worsens social stratification. And by that I mean that up until the streetcar era, most people in Oakland lived downtown or very close to downtown. They lived in the West Oakland and they lived east of the lake, but they lived in a kind of core area. And the downtown up until the streetcar era was mixed use. It had everything. It had religious buildings. It had industry. It had residences. It had stores. It had everything. Some beautiful theaters. Beautiful, a lot of theaters. They were up, I think there were between 20 and 30 theaters at one point downtown alone. That many. So down, it, it, it was a multi-use district. What happens with streetcar Oakland? It develops Oakland horizontally, but it also develops downtown vertically, right? So the downtown starts going up in density. You have the development of the office building. Often, you know, up until uh, the early 20th century, the tallest structures in Oakland were church spires. Afterward, they become office buildings, right? And so this, the new downtown is now much more homogeneous. Resident industry moves out. They move out to larger parcels along the estuary and the waterfront where the rail lines are and the water transport means. And then that's followed by residences. Residents start moving out along the streetcar lines. They move to North Oakland, the upper, the lower hills, all through East Oakland. So basically what you get in Oakland after the streetcar from the early 20th century is a commercial downtown, a commercial downtown of office buildings, department stores, movie theaters, ballrooms, produce markets, hotels, a new type of downtown, but really geared exclusively around commerce. And mm -hmm. residence becomes afterthoughts now, right? Mm -hmm. They're located elsewhere. That's the kind of downtown that people are trying to reverse now, right? Yeah. Starting in the late 20th century, we need a multi-use downtown because this old model of a commercial downtown isn't working at, at well, all. Because a lot of those office workers don't stay around downtown after they clock out at the end of the day. They're going up to the hills or out to the suburbs. And so, I mean, I remember walking around downtown Oakland 20 years ago and it was incredibly quiet at night. You could walk around blocks and blocks of downtown Oakland, not even bump into a single person. And even the financial district in San Francisco is like that and lower Manhattan is like that. It's, it's a characteristic of downtowns across the country that when they became homogeneously commercial, they only operated dur when the, during the time office workers were there. And that brings us, that'll bring us to the Zoom phenomenon. But before going to there, I just want to point out, so when you had the streetcar expansion of Oakland, and then you had the automobile expansion of Oakland. So when Oakland expands along streetcar lines and then roads and then freeways, what it does is it allows wealthier people who have the means to move out further and to live among people that they want to live among. So it encourages racial and, and class stratification. We don't want to live near stores because a lot of the best residential suburbs in Oakland are free of stores. We don't want to live near industry, even though we're the ones who own industry and profit from it. And we don't want to live around along minorities because of America's racial climate. We want to live in exclusively white neighborhoods, so we're going to create covenants to prevent people of color, primarily African, people of African, Latino descent, and Asian descent. We're going to prevent them from moving to our neighborhoods. Well, that was made possible in a way by the technology. The technology didn't say explicitly, okay, we're going to, it's going to happen, but the technology enabled systemic racist attitudes to function. 
right. and to create homogeneous areas. And that only gets worse in the automobile era. I was right? going to say that creates this kind of uh, negative feedback loop where as the wealthier people are more and more disconnected from the flatlands of Oakland, they care less and less about the people there. And that's manifested in, you know, not only the famous examples of the freeways coming through and tearing through black and Latino and Asian neighborhoods, but also, for example, not worrying about the air pollution coming from the heavy industry in the flatlands or from the port and really disinvesting in roads and social services and things like that. It allows them to have a kind of out of sight, out of mind attitude, or even look at uh, these neighborhoods as something they can simply maybe extract wealth from or use for commerce, but not really give anything back to. Totally. I mean, what, what effectively happens is that the people who are now living in the upper hills, their relationship shifts with the automobile. Instead of relating to the immediacy of where they live or the downtown, they're no longer relating to that. And that result, that's partly why downtown Oakland starts to falter in the 60s. It starts to falter because new shopping centers are start to emerge in the 50s in Hayward, San Leandro, Walnut Creek, El Cerrito. The people in the suburbs don't need to go downtown anymore because they have their own stores. The suburbs develop their entire ecosystem. They don't need downtown. So what do they need, what do they need Oakland for? It becomes a place to drive through yeah. on the freeway on your way to San Francisco. It becomes a place to BART under on your way to San Francisco. So yes, you're completely right. They don't see or care about the inner city areas they're going through that are suffering because they, it's not in their consciousness. Right. I think there's a quote in the book from, I believe it's an urban planner who talks about why some of these more upscale stores don't want to locate in downtown Oakland. And this person compares the, the visual look of downtown Oakland to like a bombed out Beirut during the Lebanese Civil War. Right. Which is just striking. And it did. I mean, I, you know, I lived here in the early 80s and downtown Oakland in the early 80s was a lot of it was really rough. It was it was a tough place. You didn't walk around at night. You know, unfortunately, some of these things are happening still because the because of the current crime problems. But uh, yeah, I mean, retailers are really skittish. And Oakland went from being the retail center of the East Bay to being one of the most underserved retail areas in the country by the end of the 20th century. But they never gave, o the, the city leaders of Oakland never gave up that dream of reclaiming like a shopping mall, for example, in downtown Oakland. They were kind of chasing this concept that, oh, if we can just get a big shopping mall in downtown Oakland, that'll boost the city again. And it seemed like that was a cycle that was happening for decades where they were kind of chasing plans that kept falling through. Why was that the, the concept that they were going after? Well, they, want, they, were going, they wanted to compete with both San Francisco and the suburbs because that's where the jobs were. That's where people were moving. That's where the money was. And so the, oh, the suburbs have all these big shopping malls. San Francisco has all these office buildings. We need more of all of that, right? Downtown Oakland should have more of all that. So they came up with a plan called City Center this gestation began in the late 50s and proceeded through the 60s. And the idea was, let's rip out the old core of Oakland. You know, we're talking 18 blocks and then a few more later, entire blocks, right? And th there was a history of doing this because in the 50s, it, what is now Interstate 880, the Nimitz, ripped out, I think, 13 entire blocks between 5th and 6th. And that's what you alluded to earlier. It went right through the... Chinatown area, the Mexican area, and then into West Oakland through the black area. 
right through the minority communities, the path of least resistance, the people who had the least ability to fight back. Yeah, the least representation in City Hall. Who not represented and who didn't have money and power to fight back, right? That, that doesn't really happen till the, till the later 60s. So they came up with this plan. We're going to build a gigantic shopping mall in the middle of downtown Oakland, and it's going to be surrounded by these tall skyscrapers with offices, a la San Francisco. And not only that, we're going to extend the 24, the Grove Shafter Freeway, which is now the 980. It's going to have literally, this was incredible, it's going to have exit and entrance ramps directly into the shopping mall, not onto the streets of Oakland. So you can go from the suburbs, this was the idea, right into the shopping mall and then go right back without ever encountering Oakland. So it was almost like, a, and it had a kind of wall around it. So it was going to be like this walled city. Like a fortress of commerce. Kind of like Renaissance Center in Detroit, which was, ex right. and, uh, that was, it happened there. Mm -hmm. This kind of, Detroit was suffering too at the same period. And, and for, uh, they created a walled city within the city of Detroit that's completely separate. Well, they wanted that, right? And it, it failed. It failed utterly. Uh, the, the shopping uh, department stores, the leading chains, Bullocks, Macy's, they flirted with it. it. It limped on. Eventually, they relocated it to behind the Fox Theater. Didn't work there either. So it failed completely. Why did it fail? Because it was a suburban paradigm that, you know, for basically white women shoppers, that was who they were thinking, you know, because that was, that was their main audience, you know, main target audience. And the, the department stores weren't convinced that those people would want to come to downtown Oakland when they had other places nearer to them that they could shop. And the, the plan didn't serve the people of Oakland very much. The right. people who live nearby, it, right. it ignored them. So for all these reasons, it failed. The office buildings hardly came. Like a couple were built, the Clorox building, the Wells Fargo building, and a couple others. But most of the development around 14th and Broadway, or thereabouts, was government. You know, mm -hmm. if you look at the office buildings that went up, about at least half of them, like the Dellums yeah, Federal the Center, Federal they're government buildings. So mm -hmm. government kind of rescued down a lot of city center. And a lot of city centers sat vacant for, for decades. It was a real, a real strange move, <laughs> you could mm -hmm. call it, part of the urban renewal era. They did something similar in West Oakland. They wanted to make West Oakland a barrier between the poorer parts of, uh, you, know, to, you know, to the West and this new supposedly shining downtown, right? So, you know, urban rural plans were developed for West Oakland involving complete slum clearance, right? The Acorn development, where they basically tore out thousands of housing units in order to build what they thought would be middle income housing for whites and blacks that would serve as a kind of buffer. And then downtown was actually going to get high rise, like affluent housing that never happened. Your book brings up something that uh, I, I don't think most people are aware of, which is Operation Padlock. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems like it had a pretty dramatic impact on downtown, and it's not usually brought up in this narrative that we're discussing of the urban renewal era as much as some of these other you know, big uh, infrastructure projects like BART and the post office and, and ACORN and things like that. Operation Padlock occurred in the early 1960s, and the goal was, like the Clinton Park urban renewal, which was east of the lake, we're not going to do total slum clearance. We're going to do really strict code compliance. We're going to force building owners to modernize their buildings. And 
presumably a lot of them will either modernize or they'll go or the buildings will be abandoned the city will claim them and they'll they'll be redeveloped into something more copacetic with well the buildings they were mostly targeting were sros right yeah, single resident residential hotels yeah. right and what oakland did and this is something a lot of american cities did san francisco a little bit less but american cities in this period attempted a full-scale eradication of their sro districts because that was the place of poor people in the downtown. Unsightly, you know, to the kind of new vision of downtown as a kind of enclave of wealthy people. So they wanted to get rid of all that. And yet the residential hotels, as this is not known by most people, were probably the largest resource of housing for poor Americans in cities. Not public housing and not market rate private housing outside of downtown you know, like actual apartment buildings or single families. There's three types, you know, there's different types of housing. The residential hotels are for people who are more transient, who don't, you know, who can pay less money because they don't have, often have kitchens or, you know, they're just single rooms with, with maybe a shared kitchen somewhere down the hall. So by eliminating the SROs, and Oakland, like a lot of cities, lost most of its residential hotels from the 60s to now, right? If you look at the homeless pro problem today in Oakland, one of the major reasons, there are several reasons for that problem. One is the elimination of the residential hotels. Two is the Oakland never built a lot of public housing and stopped completely by the late 60s building family housing. So there's uh, virtually no public housing being added to Oakland. And that was uh, due to the opposition of the real estate industry. They didn't like it at all. They didn't like public housing. They only liked programs that would benefit the wealthy. Public housing wasn't going to do anything for them. So they, they Oakland built relatively little public housing. So you're talking about, you know, reducing the number of, of residential hotels, not building enough public housing. Then you're talking about the increasing, you know, wealth of the Bay Area and the, you know, the, the demand for housing is going up. You add to that then the NIMBY attitude of, well, we want our neighborhoods to stay more or less the same. We don't want apartments and high-rise or even mid-rise housing in our neighborhoods, which was the case in a lot of, you know, more affluent parts of Oakland. So there's less housing being built. And then you add to that all the, the closure of the state hospitals and throwing, you know, people who have mental illnesses out onto the streets. You yeah. add all those factors together and you have our homeless problem. So that, that plan of kicking out the SROs and then, hey, everything's going to magically get better. Commerce will return. High income people will move back downtown. That didn't really happen. There were a few glimmers of hope for a while. And I'm thinking of a massive project like the Kaiser Center, um, this enormous industry located right on the shores of Lake Merritt, kind of prime real estate at the nexus of sort of downtown, uptown, auto row and the lake, pretty close to BART, thousands of employees enormous investment in, in the downtown region of mm -hmm. Oakland. Why didn't that spark a renaissance as a lot of people were predicting that it was going to do? In a way it did. Okay. Uh, it was built in 1959 as a mixed use center, kind of like a, a little walled area, right? It contained an office building. It contained shopping. There were department stores in the Kaiser Center. It has this amazing park atop the, you know, 
The, I just wish that park was open to the public for longer hours. It's kind of hard to get only there. Only during work hours. Only during work hours. So right. if you have a normal nine to five job, you can basically never go there. Right. You can't go on the weekend. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you have to go through the parking garage to get into right. it. And lately they've even been closing the parking garage. Kind of a hidden gem, but if you can get there, it's a beautiful it's park. It's a hidden gem. And I love the Car Kaiser Center architecturally. It's beautiful in all its ways. But what the Kaiser Center did, it created a paradigm. It has, I, I forget the exact, thousands of parking spaces. Right, and it's a four-story or five-story parking garage. So basically what the Kaiser Center did is, okay, here we have this new beautiful precinct right by the lake that you can drive to. And again, like a lot of things we're talking about, you don't have to relate to the rest of Oakland. You don't have to walk through Oakland to get to it. You drive right to the parking garage, you function there, and then you go home. So that didn't contribute to the rest of Oakland because it was isolated from the rest of Oakland. It also drew energy from the traditional core, right? The 100% corner, which is at 14th and Broadway, the corner that typically had the highest rents. The Kaiser Center did, though, spawn a whole series of office buildings in its vicinity. There are like eight or nine of them right around yeah. it. That, and that was where most private office construction happened after the Kaiser Center. So that's really the kind of largest office, private office cluster in Oakland now. And yet it didn't contribute to the other parts of downtown. It contributed to its, mm. uh, itself, right? That kind of uptown Oakland. And it was exclusively office, so it wasn't mixed use, so it was dead like you talked about, you know, after five o'clock on weekdays and dead on weekends. And you can't even go to the gar that beautiful garden on the weekend. So it doesn't really function for other than office workers. One of my favorite things about reading this book is you read about all these ideas for developments that didn't actually happen. Um, a lot of proposals that people were pushing for a while and then failed for whatever reason or got shot down. And I'm going to put you on the spot here, Mitchell. I'm curious about if there's any developments that you really wish did happen that, that didn't actually occur? And then on the flip side, any proposals that you're just very, very glad never got off the ground? Yeah, okay. I'll start with one I really wish happened. I think it's probably Oakland's greatest planning failure was not building a large central park in an accessible part of the city, like Golden Gate Park for San Francisco. There was a plan to do it. It was gonna be called Wildwood Park. It was gonna encompass parts of the land around the upper part of Lake Merritt, like Haddon Heights. Uh, it was going to extend then up through Trestle Glen and up through, you know, actually where I live, you know, that area. And it was going to go all the way to where Diamond Park is and then up to the very top of the foothills. And it was going to be, uh, it varied in size from 350 acres to some, some of the proposals got over 700 acres. It would have been this big park in the middle of Oakland that people could have walked to. And it was defeated by a kind of laissez-faire attitude in the late teens and 20s, that the, the city government was like, we don't want to pay taxes for that. We don't want to raise taxes. We don't want, government is not involved in doing that. Well, it's interesting too that the government was always so opposed to taking land off the tax rolls. You know, yeah. this land won't be productive anymore right. if we turn it into a park. They had no problem using eminent domain to wipe out businesses and residential neighborhoods if they were going to put roads in. Right. And that's not generating tax revenue, except for maybe gasoline taxes. They connected the roads to uh, to yeah. some sort right. of productive of activity in parks. Productive? I mean, it's yeah. leisure. They didn't, there was a kind of lack of foresight. There really was on the part of city fathers. I think that's probably Oakland's single, one of the worst uh, planning failures. I would say one of the, the, the probably the, the planning idea that, was proposed that didn't happen that would have been the worst, I think, is the Shoreline Freeway. 
<laughs> yeah, please explain what this was, because even just picturing it gave me like shivers running up and down my spine about how disgusting that would look. Well, it, it was an expression of the fact that Oakland realized at a certain point, and this is already by the time of, you know, by the 1950s, it had no more unbuilt land in, in the flat parts of Oakland. And they were building freeways all around Oakland. Four freeways got built, at least four didn't get built, right? There was one that was, you know, the, the Warren, the 13 was actually going to continue past the Claremont Hotel and run down Ashby Avenue to connect with the uh, 80. Berkeley said no. Berkeley fought it off. That one got, it got built in Oakland, the 13. But there were other ones that were kind of insane, and the worst was the shoreline. The shoreline would have gone, they, they were going to extend, turn Hegenberger. There's a little bit of Hegenberger that is kind of like a freeway between International and the airport. It kind of has a freeway quality for a little bit. They were going to turn that into a full-fledged freeway that would have run to the airport, okay? And it would have gone actually up to the upper hills as well, connected to the, to the MacArthur and the 13, and the 580 and the 13. But then after the airport, it was going to run out into the bay on stilts. And it was going to run alongside the bay, along the Alameda shoreline, to connect up with the bay, you know, the bay bridge. And then it was going to run along Berkeley shoreline all the way up. It would have been this freeway located about a third of a mile from the shoreline. You would have seen it from all the beaches and all the parks. It would have been right there. You would, instead of looking at the bay, you would have been looking at this freeway. Yeah, looking at basically like a Dumbarton Bridge type structure. And it was an attempt to relieve the congestion on the 880 and the 580. It was going to create another north-south road that was insane. And it was part of another insane uh, set of planning that was basically had the, you know, the... Uh, the BCDC, the Bay Conservation Development Commission, not been established by the late 60s, Oakland and the other Bay Area cities would have kept landfilling the bay till there was almost nothing left. They were planning. The, the port was going to extend almost to Treasure Island. I'm doing a boat tour later today out on the bay, and uh, one of the things I talk about on that tour, because we leave from the Emeryville Marina, is about how the original plans for that marina were to make it about three or four times bigger than it actually ended up being, but they had to put the brakes on it because BCDC brought the case all the way to the California Supreme Court, and uh, they were in violation of that law, so they right. had to stop dumping all that debris into the bay. Right, 1970 is pretty much the end of landfilling in the bay. Yeah. But so I think those were probably the, the, the land filling and the freeway and the, that huge it was called North Harbor port extension. Yeah. Would, uh, we're lucky. We're really lucky those things didn't happen. Absolutely. There's just some really fascinating examples in, in the book of things that never got off the ground. Like at one point, I believe you mentioned a plan to essentially dam Sausal Creek and create a lake in Diamond Canyon, I believe, where the driving range is now, which uh, from a recreational standpoint, would have been nice, you know, to have a, a walkable lake, you know, in that part of the Oakland Hills. But from an ecological viewpoint, probably a good thing they didn't do that. Not to mention the uh, earthquake risk to having all that water directly above a residential neighborhood. Oh, the, the, the story of the creeks, you know, was a sad one for a long time. You know, there are, I forget how many exactly run within Oakland's boundaries, but I think it's close to 12 to 14, you know, from the hills down toward the bay. And pretty, you know, they were, they basically, they got in the way of urban development. Right. Yeah. So they we were, put them underground. So you, you put them under a street like Lakeshore Avenue, where I live right off Lakeshore. Under Lakeshore is Wildwood Creek. It runs under the under. You don't have a no one. Most people in the neighborhood don't know there was a creek there. And this was the case throughout the city. And it's only been it started in Berkeley. A lot of environmental trends started in Berkeley. A lot of good things. And uh, Oakland got onto that bandwagon of like, whoa, the creeks are actually a resource. <laughs> 
they're a green set of necklaces. And what's interesting, when you think back to Wildwood Park, what Frederick Law Olmsted, so the great designer of Central Park, Prospect Park in New York, who designed also Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland. But what, what Oakland realized, he, he, what, what his, excuse me, Olmsted's insight, and this was echoed later by other planners like Charles Mulford Robinson in the early 20th century, is that, wow, there's something really special about the East Bay. And that thing that's really special are the creeks. And the creeks flow from the high hills all the way to the bay. There are these green necklaces. And we should take advantage of that. That should be where, where parks are. So you can actually do these linear walks along a creek and a, and a parkland adjacent to it. This is the way the city should, the, rec, the open spaces of the East Bay should be designed. That happened a little bit, but not much, right? Okay. We have a couple uh, parts of Diamond Canyon still have that, right? Uh, Thanks to the daylighting of Salsal Creek, which is a topic I'm planning on taking on in a uh, future episode in much yeah. greater depth. And there is more daylighting going on, but it's a hard thing to do, right? Because right. you're, you're running into private property in a lot of cases, and you can only do it effectively when it's public areas. And so it's, that, was a, uh, that was Olmsted's insight, which should have formed the basis of Wildwood Park and perhaps a lot of other parks, keeping that kind of geographic those geographic perimeters around the neighborhood so that every neighborhood would have these green ribbons alongside them. Yeah. A lot of that didn't happen. Instead, they became dumping grounds when they, were, when they didn't get you know, abandoned. It's sad in general. I think the parks are a really sad aspect of Oakland. We didn't build enough of them, and today we don't take care of them. <sighs> that is that is a very sad topic, but um, switching gears a little bit, I just want to you know commend you for for digging up so many interesting factoids in this book. Uh, I'm curious about what some of the biggest surprises were for you when you were digging into this research. Like for example, I'm thinking I'm thinking of something like about how the fact that the fruit cocktail <laughs> was invented in a in a Cal food lab by a Berkeley professor. Didn't know that, wasn't aware that the fruit cocktail was uh, invented here in the East Bay. Was there anything else? You know, it doesn't have to be a, a trivial fact like that, but was there any other real surprises that you came across when you were digging into the, the mountains of research that you must have been uh, sifting through to uh, compile this collection of information that you, you've got here in Hella Town? I mean, I think some of the, the a lot of the stories, like I've, I've, re, I've recently working, I'm working now finishing an article that's not in the book, I was interested in positioning Oakland, like who are the people in Oakland who really made a difference in the world? What, what, what were Oakland contributions beyond the built environment, right? And I found out that uh, Oakland was the bodybuilding center of, of the world, practically. From the Jack LaLanne? Jack LaLanne, Ed Yarrick, a whole bunch of people created this incredible bodybuilding. Many Mr. Americas. One of the first gyms, like workout gyms in America, was right down by like Latham Square, right? Jack LaLanne's gym was apparently the second okay. in, the, in the country, and it was near there. He, it moved a couple places around Franklin and, and 17th Street. Ed Yarrick's gym was on Foothill Boulevard. It was the, really the, the kind of locus of where you, the, a lot of these Mr. Americas came from. They, all, they worked out there. And then, I, and then I, I found out that, oh, it wasn't just white people who were going to the gyms. It was also a lot of Asian American people who started going to the gyms. And out of that came a martial arts boom in Oakland, a huge boom. Returning servicemen were coming back from the Pacific Theater 
and exposed to judo and karate in the, you know, in, in the military, and they started opening up karate and judo st uh, schools around Oakland, Alameda. We became kind of a center of that. And then the Chinese Americans, including Bruce Lee, who lived here for a couple of years in the early 1960s, in fact, this is where he made his leap to Hollywood. He got a whole episode all about that for anyone is interested in Bruce Lee's years in Oakland. It's a fascinating so and, and really got, important story. And there's all these others like James Yim Lee. And so that I was like, whoa, that happened in Oakland. And then a third area that... Oh, just real quick before you, uh, I want to pause you for a second because you're, uh, when you mentioned about, you know, people of different ethnicities working out together in these Oakland gyms, uh, I believe it's... Quincy McCoy, the general manager of KPFA, who told me a story about working out at, I think, the Gold Gym. It used to be, I believe, on Grand near the lake. And he would see Huey Newton and Sonny Barger, the head of the Hells Angels, working out together. And he said they were both pretty big guys. And it was just like astonishing to see these kind of two cultural titans working out in the same gym together. No question. And that was exactly where I was heading. The third the third one I'm, I write about is, is are the Hells Angels chapter in Oakland, which was the Perhaps the most notorious and most influential Hells Angels chapter in California, Sonny Barger, was the head of it for a long time. That's an Oakland story, too. And it's amazing. The, and I didn't write about the Black Panthers because I figured there's, elite, there's four, I think, four books alone writing about the Black Panthers in Oakland. Oh, They're absolutely. Yeah. I mean, well I've got a whole shelf of my bookcase uh, just devoted to Black Panthers but, books. But there's but quite a lot of them. The article I'm finishing is called Oakland Tough. And it's really, it starts with the Raiders, you know, the whole Al Davis Raiders of the 60s and 70s who were the badass team in football. So Oakland had this kind of mid-20th century from the 30s through the 70s reputation as a kind of incubator of badass tendencies <laughs> and, and kind of extreme masculine behavior. Wow. Uh, and it's something maybe we're not entirely thrilled with it at all times, but it is part of our history and it's worth thinking. And a lot of it was kind of cool, the bodybuilders, the martial artists. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, before we wrap things up, I want to ask your opinion on what you think people who are interested in urban planning can learn from this book. Because if there's one thing I noticed reading through the history that you compiled here, it's that so often urban planners got it wrong. I mean, there was just prediction after prediction after prediction that was, oh, if we build this, this is going to happen. And it turned out the exact opposite. So thinking about how to not repeat the mistakes of the past if we're predicting, uh, you know, changes or developments that could make Oakland, you know, a better, more equitable, more livable place. What can urban planners learn from looking at the history through reading your book? Great question. Um, this is kind of the central conundrum, I think, of California. California is really great at doing wild, amazing things, coming up with crazy plans and audacious, bold visions. It, we're, we're amazing at that. And we've been doing that for, you know, 150 years or more. We don't have a lot of reflection in California. We really don't spend a lot of time reflecting on what we did and whether it makes sense. Look at the fact that there's no museum of history in California, really. Sacramento, there's not a large mu historical museum about California. San Francisco couldn't even get a museum off the ground, you know, in the Mint Building about the history of San Francisco. What an amazing city, San Francisco. You'd think there'd be a museum about all the incredible developments that went on there. Never happened, right? So we have the let's do stuff, let's make stuff, but we don't have, well, let's look back and see whether that let's make stuff makes any sense in this case. Maybe we should be more careful. And so 
I think what I want to encourage, uh, I think one, one of the things, if you, one reads the book through, you get a sense of, well, this is what happened. These are the, th the things that, you know, like we were talking about today, these are some of the great things that happened. These are I mean, the not great so things that happened. These are some of the bold plans that should have happened. These are some of the bold plans that we're happy that they didn't happen. Maybe that will encourage in the future an attitude on the part of Oakland citizens and Oakland leaders. Wait a minute, when we come up with stuff, let's think a little more about it. Because Americans, Californians, Oaklanders tend to have this kind of blind optimism. And it's one of the wonderful things about this country, right? That blind optimism. We can do anything. Yeah, technology will solve all our problems. Technology will solve all our problems, right? But like I mentioned earlier, we ne I never got back to it, Zoom. Look at Zoom is a, in really ways a kind of continuation of the streetcar and the freeway. Because what is Zoom doing now? It's allowing people with means, people who don't have essential jobs, who don't have to be in contact, who can do their jobs remotely, people who have the ability to buy houses and property in Tahoe, or which is now coming as a mistake to some of them, but they can go to Idaho, they can go wherever they want, Hawaii, and they can work from there. So it's accentuating the social geographic stratification of the Bay Area. You don't have to live near who you don't want to live. You can, in fact, you don't have to live even in a city or a suburb. You can live in a mountain ski resort and work from there. So Zoom, again, not, you know, I don't think it was written into their plan, but what it's doing is creating a decentralization away from downtowns and away from cities and even suburbs and without thinking about what that's going to do to downtowns. What, are, what is downtown Oakland? What is downtown San Francisco going to look like if 25, 30% of the office workers are gone permanently? Right, it's, and if another 20% of the residences are Airbnbs. Totally. And you know what I got from reading some of the commentaries, like Werner Hegemann, who was a German city planner who came to Oakland in, in the teens and wrote a, a, a very interesting plan about Oakland and the East Bay. What I what you get from someone like him is that, and he's you know looking at America from the outside, he's like Americans are great, they're really great at doing stuff, but they don't think about what they're doing too carefully and what are its long-term implications. They don't think they don't plan carefully for everyone they allow things to happen. And some of those things that happen are fantastic. Some of them are not fantastic. And the book is really details both sides of that equation. So I, I would hope that a book like this and books that are analogous to this about our, our you know, involvement in foreign wars, that Americans will eventually get to the point where we realize there are limits to this acting you know, without reflection. And the global climate disaster is a, great, is a great lesson to that too. We can't just do the things the way we've been doing them. The world is not going to be able to support it. So that, I really hope that people can think more carefully. I think a little of that's happening in Oakland. I think there's an awareness that this longstanding competition with San Francisco just doesn't make sense. You know, they're, they're a world famous city that almost there isn't almost, other than New York, there probably isn't another American city like them. There's no reason to be San Francisco. We should be Oakland. Yeah, Jack London Square is never going to be Fisherman's Wharf. And they tried and it <laughs> failed, you know, repeatedly. You know, there's empty buildings, you know, so we should, we should try to be Oakland. Yeah, we don't need a Bubba Gump shrimp here we in don't. Oakland. <laughs> no, and we don't need a suburban shopping mall in downtown. We don't need these kind of things. We should try to be Oakland. I think, but we should also have ambition. So a kind of balance between yeah. ambition and also reflection. I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, Mitchell Schwarzer, the author of Helitown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption. It's been a pleasure having you on East Bay yesterday. 
Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. I had a great time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. As always, you can see photos related to this episode at my website, eastbayyesterday.com. Big thanks to Alex Don from UC Press for hooking me up with Mitchell Schwarzer and everybody else who made this book happen. Hellatown is out now and you can find it at independent local bookstores across the Bay Area. Also, massive thanks to those of you out there who support this show through Patreon. I'm so, so grateful for your generous support. I couldn't do this without you. You rock. If anybody else out there wants to support my ability to keep making new shows, go to eastbayyesterday.com, hit the donate link at the top of the page, and yeah, anything you can afford would be much appreciated. If you dug this episode, please share it on social media, tell your friends, spread the word. I see your tweets and your Facebook and Instagram posts when you tag me, and it really warms my heart. Love you guys. The music for this episode came from local producer Justin Lee. The theme song came from Anatech. And that's going to do it. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday. <laughs>